0: Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here.
1: And I'm Gabby. And we
0: are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history
2: can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
3: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries, of curiosities, of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside... The Box of Oddities.
0: Just getting over a cold, so please bear with me. Um, I am so happy, though. Even though I'm not feeling 100%, Cat is home. (laughs) I missed you so much.
2: Uh, (laughs) We we ended up, for some reason, this trip, there was an ongoing theme of me saying that you were sick of my bullshit. Right. And uh, so (laughs) every time you'd be like, oh, I miss you. I'm like, "Uh, really? Do you miss all my bullshit? And then I came home and I was asking you about something and you just walked away from me. And I was like, see, that's the bullshit i are talking about. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of weird things happened when you got home. I picked you up at the airport mm-hmm. and uh, you'd been up all night pretty much. Yeah. I didn't get a lot of sleep the night before because I was so excited you were coming home.
2: Sure. A Twitter you were. Yeah.
0: So I pick you up at the airport. We come back and we both decide to take a nap. Yeah. So you jump in the shower, and uh, I crawl into bed, and then you come in, and you you crawl under the covers with me, and I haven't seen you for over a week, and I'm gently caressing your face, and I lovingly look into your eyes and say, I am so glad you're home, and you immediately said, I just had the best poop ever. (laughs)
2: Well, you know, travel always makes me a little nervous, no, a little tense. I totally
0: get it. Yeah. Yeah. And
2: uh, plus I had had two really good salads the day before. <laughs> um, so there was that. Yeah. And then you were like, what's on your arm? <laughs> like, yeah. oh, that's right. I had some free time. And so I got some new tattoos.
0: Yeah. She got two tattoos <laughs> while she was in Maine. Uh. Anyway, I'm so glad you're home. Me too. And uh, Haggis is just all a Twitter.
2: Oh, do you want to say a Twitter twice in a row? Did I It seems like a lot of a Twitters. I said a Twitter. Oh,
0: you did? Yeah. Okay.
2: I just don't know that this house really contains that much a Twitter. That's fair. It's funny, though, because he was very excited, and we both delighted in how... Pouncy he was and prancy mm-hmm. and he was all like yay and you know wiggle waggy and tails going and then four minutes later was asleep again <laughs>
0: <laughs> not too dissimilar from us yeah yeah well you were gone there was one day and i'm not exaggerating i got up i don't know probably nine thirty. i drank a pot of coffee and then took a nap <laughs> Whew. anyway i've got a story for you please all right on the morning of May 5th, 1945, in the beautiful forests of Southern Oregon, Reverend Archie Mitchell and his wife Elsie and their five children, they had just left Sunday school.
2: Was one of their children Joni?
0: No, it wasn't. No. Oh. Not that, no.
2: I'm just saying the timing would have worked out, I think.
0: Probably about right. So they set out for a leisurely Sunday afternoon picnic, but they did not know that their day would soon take a very dark and devastating turn. As the family arrived at their picnic spot, they noticed something peculiar. There was a strange object that seemed to be caught in a tree, draped across the branches. At first, it kind of looked like, they said, laundry that maybe had been haphazardly hung out to dry. The children, kids being kids, they were naturally curious. Of course. They rush over to investigate, and Elsie, the protective mom, cautiously followed behind them.
2: Is it D.B. Cooper's parachute?
0: Oh, that would have been cool. It would have been cool. Because he would have had to have traveled back in time 30 years. (sighs) That would have been an unexpected twist to the story.
2: You do love the unexpected.
0: As they drew closer, what they found looked kind of like a balloon, like a weather balloon. Now, Reverend Mitchell, who had been parking the car as Elsie and the children examined this mysterious object, could only watch in horror as that mysterious object exploded with devastating force and killed his wife and children. What? Instantly.
2: Oh, it's the Japanese balloon bomb.
0: This is the story of the Japanese balloon bombing campaign.
2: You know, our friend and co-host, Lindsey Schnebley, posted about that.
0: Yeah, he actually sent me a link and said, you need to do this or I'm going to come to Florida and wait for you in the tall grass. (laughs) end <laughs> quote
2: it's funny Lindsay doesn't send me topic ideas
0: <laughs> hmm. well he's my friend <laughs> anyway this family fell victim to the little known Japanese weapon and uh, in the process became the only civilian casualties of World War II on US soil so to understand how tragic an event like this could occur we need to kind of rewind a bit and delve into the origins of of the Japanese balloon bombing campaign.
2: Yeah, I'd never heard of this.
0: During, <laughs> during World War II... No,
2: I mean, before, before I saw it on oh, the okay. page, I uh, hadn't heard of this. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't still trying to be a dick.
0: <laughs> it's one thing about your dickness is you're consistent. During World War II, the Japanese military sought innovative ways to attack their enemies. One such strategy was the development of the Fugo, a hydrogen-filled balloon carrying incendiary and anti-personnel bombs. And the plan was simple but ingenious. The Japanese would release thousands of these balloons into the jet stream, where they would drift across the Pacific Ocean and, in theory, rain down destruction upon the United States. The idea was to create chaos, spread fear... And also, ultimately, divert American resources away from the front lines. Mm -hmm. They thought if they have to defend the West Coast, then that's fewer people we have to deal with in the Pacific Theater. Right. And for a time, it seemed to work. Between November of 1944, when they released their first balloon, and April of 1945, the Japanese military released over 9,000 balloon bombs. Oh, my God. And approximately 300 of them reached the U.S. and Canada. And this was before the explosion that took the family members out. So how could so many, nearly 300 balloons, many of which exploded on the west coast of North America, go unnoticed, unreported? Why didn't this young family know about them or know what they were dealing with? Right. Kept them from running over to see what that was? Poke it with a stick. The answer? A government cover-up.
2: Ugh. just like the aliens
0: just like the aliens actually very many similarities (laughs) that wasn't a flying saucer that was a weather balloon the u.s government not wanting to cause panic or reveal that the balloons were being that were actually effective kept the story under wraps right now how do you do that when there have been 300 sightings and close to that many explosions on the west coast How do you keep such a bizarre and potentially terrifying weapon secret from the public? And it's kind of a mix of things. Media censorship, strategic silence, and just plain luck. First, the U.S. government imposed very strict censorship on any information related to the balloon bombs. They convinced newspapers and radio stations to refrain from reporting on these incidents. Even if they landed in the newspaper's parking lot, the government told them, don't talk about it.
2: Did they get some sort of compensation for this? Because I would think the best way would be like, hear ye, hear ye, Mm. if you see a balloon bomb and you don't talk about it, we'll give you $100. Yeah,
0: Yeah, a cash incentive. They just argued that public knowledge of the attacks would only serve to boost Japanese morale and encourage further bombing. So the media, they were pretty eager to support the war effort. And part of that was to maintain national security. So they quickly complied with the government's request.
2: Okay. And it's true if if part of the effort of the balloon bombing was to create chaos, right. you know, you want to try to squash that if you can. A
0: terrorist act. Secondly, the government employed strategic silence. When balloon bombs were discovered or exploded, officials would explain them away with alternate reasons for the events, attributing them to accidents or natural occurrences.
2: Swamp gas.
0: Swamp gas. This helped to maintain an air of mystery around the incidents and prevent panic from spreading among the public. And it is interesting to note that 1945, this was just before the Roswell incident.
2: Oh.
0: I'm sure there's no connection there, but it's just interesting that all of these unexplained and mysterious things happened in a short amount of time, all surrounding the first atomic bomb explosions.
2: Yeah, and you also... Take into consideration the idea that some cryptids are harbingers of death and destruction, Mm. and so much unexplained and curious phenomena went on around World War II.
0: Oh, absolutely.
2: I mean, Mothman was in Berlin. Let's talk about it.
0: (laughs) And the third thing was just good luck. It played a big role in keeping the US government's secrets. Many of the balloon bombs that reached the U.S. landed in remote and sparsely populated areas. Well, that's
2: the thing about targeting the Northwest.
0: Yeah, especially in the mid-40s.
2: In Canada.
0: Especially in the mid-40s. Well, even today. This, of course, reduced the likelihood of discovery, and uh, they were quickly able to go out and grab these balloons and bombs, neutralize the situation, minimize potential casualties, and made it easier for them to cover it up. Additionally, the Fugo's design had flaws. The balloons were susceptible to leaks and ruptures, Mm -hmm. which often caused them to lose altitude and drift harmlessly to the ground before they could reach their intended targets. Many of them didn't even make it across the uh, Pacific. And when you think about it, yeah, 300 of them made it out of 9,000.
2: Right. That just seems like a lot of litter. Not impressed.
0: Back in Oregon, the explosion that claimed the lives of Elsie Mitchell and her five children was just too significant to ignore. The government could no longer maintain its silence. And the truth about the Japanese balloon bombs began to emerge. It's one thing to hide deflated balloons. It's another thing to explain, hey, how do these people get blown up in a park after church? Yeah. Newspapers across the country reported on this tragic event, and the public finally learned about the deadly weapon that had been floating above their heads for months. In a response to the tragedy, the U.S. military stepped up its efforts to track and intercept the remaining balloon bombs. They developed a system to predict the uh, balloon's flight paths. Shouldn't
2: that have been in effect before the public found out about it? (laughs)
0: That's an excellent point. Once they were able to predict the uh, balloon's potential flight path, fighter pilots were dispatched to shoot down any that they may have encounter- encountered. Meanwhile, the public was warned to stay away from any unidentified objects they might find, as they could be potentially dangerous.
2: It seems like that heads up wouldn't have been a bad idea to begin with.
0: No, no. It kind of forced their hand. Otherwise, they probably. Rude. We, we may never have known about it. Ultimately, the Japanese balloon bombing campaign was deemed a failure. While it did cause a fair amount of fear and confusion, it failed to inflict significant damage on the U.S., and it certainly didn't divert resources away from the front lines. As the war drew to a close, the Fugo Project was abandoned, and the remaining balloons were just set adrift, forgotten across the vast expanse of the pacific ocean
2: again just litter just litter wow wartime enemies you really told those sea turtles who was boss
0: the story of the japanese balloon bomb that uh, killed six americans in 1945 is a tragic tale of wartime innovation human curiosity and government deception it's um it's a reminder of the lengths to which nations will go in their quest for victory and devastating consequences that can result from those seemingly innocuous acts of curiosity. But for those who lost their lives on that day in Oregon, the legacy of the Japanese balloon bomb lives on, a haunting reminder of the unpredictable and deadly nature of war. Man, what a shitty day that must have been for that family. Especially,
2: I don't think there's an especially.
0: Yeah, no, especially for the father who had to witness it and then live the rest of his life.
2: Is that worse than...
0: It would be worse for me. If I had a choice between dying quickly in an explosion or watching my family, I would die quickly in an explosion. Not that I'm looking to.
2: Thanks for the clarification. (laughs)
0: My source information, the Nebraska Press from the University of Nebraska, worldcat.org. And PBS.org. Oh, also WarHistoryOnline.com. I just happened to stumble across that. Yeah, no, Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: I have to wonder about those who are innovators during war, and if their creativity in weapons of mass destruction are a source of pride for their parents. Little Billy came up with a balloon bomb,
0: killed a bunch of kids in Oregon.
2: We're so proud.
0: Gather round, dear friends, and let us embark on a journey through time, exploring the whimsical tale of the majestic tablecloth. A tale that begins with the most humblest of beginnings, a giant napkin. That's right. The story of the tablecloth is one of evolution, revolution, and a healthy dose of stains and spills. So picture this, ancient Rome, where togas were the height of fashion and everyone fancied themselves a philosopher. In those days, people didn't bother with the fancy schmancy tablecloths as we know them today. No, they used a mappa, which was a simple linen square that was draped over the table and onto the diner's laps, essentially making it a giant napkin. So after wiping their greasy fingers and mouths, they would simply toss the edge of the mappa up onto the table as if to say, there, I'm done. Now, who's up for some chariot racing? Fast forward to the Middle Ages, where everything was dark and damp and desperately in need of a makeover. It was in this dreary setting that our hero, the tablecloth, began to shine. No longer just a giant napkin, the tablecloth transformed into a symbol of wealth and status. The bigger and fancier your tablecloth, the richer you were. Lords and ladies would flaunt their elaborate tablecloths, adorned with intricate embroidery as if to say, oh, you thought your feast was grand? Well, check out my tablecloth. By Victorian times, a period when everyone was prim and proper, the tablecloth had reached the pinnacle of refinement. Elaborate handcrafted lace tablecloths were all the rage, and etiquette dictated that the tablecloth be changed after every meal. So there you have it, the history of the tablecloth, an evolution from a giant napkin to a true symbol of style and sophistication. Amber sent us an email. uh, Hey, so I'm a somewhat new listener, and I always hear about other listeners' boo effects, and I'm oftentimes admittedly envious I find myself wishing that I had a cool Boo Effect story to share because I love the show so much and I just want to feel more connected. I'm a stay-at-home mom of a two-year-old, so I don't always get the level of social interaction that I need. (laughs) Fair enough. However, today I realized how many times I've brought up things you guys have talked about when I am graced with the presence of other adults. Boo has helped me to still be part of a conversation as few and far between as they may sometimes be. That may not qualify as a boo effect, but it's definitely an effect that boo has had on me. I'm incredibly grateful for your existence. Thank you for helping me be relevant and interesting. Also, I love your love for each other so, so much. I am also lucky enough to have that kind of love, and it just warms my little heart and reminds me to remember all the beautiful things in life. So, Freakingly Sincere... Amber.
2: Aw, I love that. And I appreciate you pointing out that you're being sincere, since apparently I have a hard time differentiating between those who are and are not.
0: (laughs) I'm sick of your bullshit.
2: (laughs) Hello from sunny Queensland, writes Kim. I was just complaining about having to get up at a sparrow fart tomorrow morning for a long (laughs) drive to a work meeting. What other quirky terms are out there for times of day, I wonder? (laughs) I always say the ass crack when I mean very early. The
0: ass crack of dawn.
2: That's funny. I've dropped the of dawn over the years and just just say the ass crack.
0: I think that's a very main thing. Is it? Almost Canadian.
2: Oh, shut up. (laughs) I know what you're doing to me and I don't like it.
0: (laughs) Kat was talking to her tattoo artist and uh, one of them said something about spending a lot of time on the road listening to podcasts. And Kat says, so do you drive truck? And they laughed at her and said, that is such a Canadian phrase.
2: Do you mean, are we truck drivers?
0: (laughs) No. Do you drive truck?
2: And I was like, yeah, I suppose you are correct. It is a very main thing to say. Shout out to Jerry, by the way. Really wish you could have totaled that car out for those tattoo people. And I did go to Otter Creek as well. So I got to hear a lot of real Maine accents
1: and terminology and stuff. So that was a good time.
0: Otter Creek, you mean ot Creek?
1: Ot-crick. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly.
3: Okay. Here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen.
1: That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes you know, prepare yourself for heatwave Lucifer.
3: I don't think I can prepare myself for that.
1: Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? No, I I guess that's a point. (laughs) So the podcast is called Big Picture Science and You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.
3: We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. They've been married longer than they've been doing this podcast. And they're still talking to each other. Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth
0: continue with The Box of Oddities. All right, girl. What do you got for me?
2: The viviparous lizard, or common lizard, lives further north than any other species of non-marine reptile. He's terrestrial, we're gonna call him vivi from now on. I love it. Vivi is terrestrial, and they spend most of their time on the ground, though they do occasionally visit sites of higher elevation. They're native to much of northern Eurasia. It's mainly found uh, north of the Alps, Including the uh, British Isles, but not Iceland, interestingly, hmm. parts of northern Iberia and the Balkans. In Asia, Vivi's is mostly found in Russia, excluding Siberia, though, and in northern Kazakhstan, Mongolia, China, and Japan. Vivi has the largest distribution of any species of lizard in the world, which is probably why he's also known as the common lizard. Hmm. Now, let's learn about Cephos equalis, commonly known as the yellow-bellied three-toed skink, or simply the three-toed skink. He is a species of burrowing skink, and he's common in New South Wales and Queensland of Eastern Australia. Safi, as we will call him from now on, grows to a length of 18 centimeters or about 7 inches, um, including the tail. He has a black back and an orange belly and he's active at night, mostly feeds on insects. Now as you probably know, animals that lay eggs are called oviviparous.
0: <laughs> no, I didn't know that at all.
2: Well ovi, like the prefix ovi and ovo usually means eggs. So. Does it? okay and
0: (laughs) I'm not an egg guy
2: (laughs) viviparous animals carry embryos internally until they're fully developed the embryos can rely entirely on yolk for nutrition or the parents can provide supplementary nutrition sometimes via placenta like in humans in nature things are rarely black and white though and animal reproduction is a great example of that one aspect that has captured the attention of researchers regarding animal reproduction. And the reason that we're talking about these two lizards today, Vivi and, what did we decide to call the other guy, Safi, is bimodal reproduction. Bimodal reproduction is a rare reproductive strategy where a single species can reproduce both oviparously and viviparously.
0: What's that mean?
2: Oviparous is when they lay eggs. Oh, yeah. Viviparous that's... is when they lay when they have live birth.
0: Okay. Wow. So they do both?
2: Yeah. Crazy. I know. Only a handful of species in the world are known to exhibit this phenomenon. And the two most well-known examples are the Australian yellow-bellied skink.
0: Well, that's not very nice.
2: <laughs> and Zutoka vivipara, the two that we've been talking about this whole time. Interestingly... Zootoka or Zootaka and Vivipara mean live birth in Greek and Latin respectively. So the Safi belongs to the order Squamata, which includes lizards and snakes. This little tiny baby skink can lay eggs and give birth to to live young depending on environmental factors like temperature and altitude. Now, The availability of both of these modes of reproduction and, and being able to switch between them is thought to be an evolutionary advantage, allowing the species to optimize offspring survival under changing environmental conditions.
0: Which is why they are the common lizard because of all of the options.
2: In fact, in April of 2019, Safi made news when researchers from the University of Sydney reported observing a female laying eggs and giving birth to live young from the same pregnancy. What? The first reported observation of a vertebrae doing this. Camilla Whittington, an evolutionary biologist of the University of Sydney and a co-author of two studies, on these skinks, told Vice News that the direction in which the skinks' evolution is going, though, is not yet known. They Hmm. believe that this is a form of evolution, and that they are either going from egg-laying to live-birthing, or from live-birthing to egg-laying, but they don't know which way yet.
0: So we're kind of in the middle of that transition.
2: That's what they think. Oh, wow. This species is considered to be a key model for studying the evolution of viviparity in reptiles as it provides valuable insight into the transitional stages between egg-laying and live-bearing. The study of SAFE can help scientists understand the vertebrate traits that facilitate this shift, like the development of a placenta-like structure for nutritional exchange. Hmm. I mean, you think about the fact that the way that you feed a, a fetus inside an egg, in, inside your, your womb, mm-hmm. is totally different than the way that you would care for and food would be available to an animal that you had live birthed. You don't have to have all that function going on inside of your body if you're just popping them out. Sure. Pow, 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 shippity pow. (laughs) Vivi is another species that exhibits bimodal reproduction as we talked about. He is native to Eurasia and he can be found in a range of habitats from forests, to meadows, rocky outcrops and human settlements, but in colder climates. And as we said, they have the largest range of all terrestrial lizards. He's able to survive these harsh climates as individuals will freeze in especially cold seasons and then thaw out later when it's warmer. Oh my
0: God.
2: And the reproductive mode of Vivi is also influenced by environmental factors. Populations in colder climates are more likely to give birth to live young, while those in milder climates will typically lay eggs. And this is driven by the need to adapt to changing environmental conditions. And they think that it's Possible that global climate change can be kicking this off.
0: Well, that makes sense.
2: Genes play a significant role in controlling an animal's development, but their expression levels can vary, and some genes may not always be active. Egg-laying skinks undergo minimal genetic changes when they're carrying an egg while live-bearing skinks undergo thousands of genetic changes, including regulating the mother's immune system. The Vivi lizard also shares some key traits with Safi, like the development of a placenta-like structure for nutrient exchange during embryonic development. And this characteristic is essential for the survival of live-born offspring as it ensures adequate nourishment throughout the gestation period. The fact that this is a thing blows my mind.
0: I think the great Jeff Goldblum uh, put it best when he said, life uh, finds a way.
2: It's true. And whether or not this is a, an evolutionary shift, or if it's just how they do, it's wild. And it really provides a unique opportunity to study the evolution of viviparity in reptiles and the vertebrate traits that facilitate the shift. The reproductive adaptations of these species not only ensure the survival of their offspring, but also contribute to the understanding of the incredible ways that animals make do the adaptability of life on Earth and showcase how nothing is in black and white in nature.
0: It's amazing. It's remarkable when you think that uh, they can do that, lay eggs and have live birth. Also, they can freeze and then come alive again. Yeah. And then there are types of reptiles, lizards, where if their tail gets cut off, it just freaking grows back.
2: Yeah, they're regenerating.
0: It's nuts. It's nuts.
2: Lizards are incredible.
0: Mm.
2: That's one of the things that I really like about living here is we have so many lizards near to us and we traveled uh, like an hour and a half a couple of weeks ago to go to West Palm and we saw different types of lizards there that we've never seen here. Yeah. It's just, I don't know, it's neat. It is. You don't see a lot of lizards in Maine. (laughs) (laughs) I got my information from sydney.edu.au, Reptiles Magazine, theconversation.com, vice.com, and of course, Wikipedia.
0: Fascinating stuff. Oh, before we leave, I I did want to uh, mention one more thing that happened when Kat got home. I told her I would make her grilled cheese and soup, you know, for our first night back together. Again, just, you know, comfy food. Comfort food. And while I was doing it, Kat stood over my shoulder and criticized the way I was buttering the bread. That's
2: not what happened. I told you, you picked out the perfect bread. You got the cheese that you know I like best. You had the butter out, which is important. Yeah, You did a great job. But
0: then we got into a discussion about how hot the pan should be before I put. And uh, then you said to me, and I love this. You said, I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm just telling you you're doing it wrong.
2: But then immediately I said, "Okay, that came out (laughs) and sounded different than I intended it to. that happens. I mean, it was accurate. That's what I meant
0: to to convey. Yeah. I
2: just didn't mean to say it that way. It happens. (laughs) Pan's got to be hot, babe. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's part of my ongoing evolution in grilled cheese making ability.
2: <laughs> well, I'm sure you guys have had enough of my bullshit. Yeah, so certainly uh... <laughs>
0: have. Um, thanks for hanging out with us and we'll see you next time.
2: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
0: And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And remember, the pan has to be hot before you put the grilled cheese sandwich into it. <laughs> but not too hot. No.
3: And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, we wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Box On Facebook at Facebook.com Box of Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities. And Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.